Hi, this is DebtWire Managing Editor Andrew Ragsley. Welcome to the latest edition of our DebtWired podcast. On this episode, we're digging into the matter of impact investing with Michael Korengold of Enhanced Capital. Michael is president and CEO of the impact investing firm. He serves on Enhanced Capital's investment committees and board of directors. On the podcast, Deputy Editor Rashmi Basu and Michael talk about the rise of ESG as a buzzword and how Enhanced Capital has been doing impact investing for more than 20 years. Michael delves into what defines impact investing, how it's different from ESG, and clears up the misconception that yes, private markets can make money when it comes to investing in public good initiatives. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. What does Enhanced Capital do? How you differentiate yourself from other lenders? So Enhanced Capital is a broad-based impact investment firm. And we participate in impact investing through really three different silos. Our small business impact investment, which invests in small businesses located in underserved areas. So think low-income communities and rural areas, small businesses that are owned by women and people of color, and small businesses that promote environmental sustainability. Our second silo is we have an impact real estate group that finances community revitalization projects, typically historic buildings, maybe that have been idle as an old factory that are now brought back into commerce. And then last but not least, and certainly the fastest growing area, is financing climate finance projects, uh, renewable energy, energy efficiency, and and other projects. Everything we do is in the impact investment space. And so what really differentiates ourselves from other lenders is that we, when we look to borrowers, we look and operate like many lenders. We're negotiating on behalf of our investors market rates of return, but we care deeply about measuring uh, the impact that those investments are going to are going to have, and we uh, want to quantify, measure all that on the front end, just in the same way that we would our economic outcomes as well. Now, ESG has been trending on Wall Street. What is the difference between impact investing and ESG? It's a good question. And I think there's been a blurred line uh, between the two for lots of folks. ESG was really a concept around originally screening out, filtering out investments that fell into certain categories, uh, might be you know, fossil fuel investments, investments that uh, overseas that employed um, child labor, those types of investments, you know, tobacco, and and screening out, say, in a public equities portfolio, uh, the investments that that ran afoul of their ESG objectives. Impact investing, on the other hand, is in a deliberate, affirmative strategy for creating an impact that is demonstrable, that is defined. Uh, but that is created through an investment that's made. And so in our case, we're a lender, as I mentioned, a small businesses or impact real estate or, or climate projects. And so our investments 
are by definition designed both to create a financial return, but also uh, to create an impact return. Which sectors are you focusing on? What are the misconceptions surrounding impact investing and how do you make money? All good questions. Um, you know, we're a generalist in terms of where we play within each of the silos that I mentioned. So within our small business finance group, we you know, care about the impact that we're getting from either the place-based investing or the businesses owned by women or people of color. But within those categories, um, we're, we're not focused on one sector over another. I think it that that also kind of ties into maybe some of the misperceptions around impact investing. And I think you know the the biggest one is that there has to be a material trade-off between the types of market rate returns that investors otherwise would demand and impact, meaning that many people still believe that if you're investing for impact as well as financial returns, that you must be making some kind of concession on the financial returns that you're willing to receive. There are concessionary impact investment firms out there that as part of their strategy, put capital out and, and, and expect a lower rate of return in exchange for the impact that they're having. But there are many more firms like ours that don't. And so we are a non-concessionary uh, impact investment firm, meaning that we're making investments seeking market rates of return as well as impact. And I, I think there are many other firms out there that do the same thing. So I, I think that's the that's the chief misperception. And that then ties into your question about how do we make money? We make money like any other private capital fund manager where we're paid on the basis of the performance of our underlying investments. The only difference being that in addition to the financial performance, our investors also expect us to measure the performance on the impact front. And that's why it's so important that we're able to demonstrate that performance through, you know, quantifying those results in the same way that we would uh, financial performance. So can you give an example of how the firm has been able to merge the public good with financial returns? Sure. In the case of our renewable energy investing in our climate finance group, Renewable energy in, in this country has been built largely on the basis of a federal and, and in some cases state tax credit or incentive. Without that tax credit, which is effectively a government subsidy, those projects would not exist, certainly at the scale that they are today. So that is a demonstrated, identified a public good that's reflected in, in that public policy in the form of a tax credit. We are able to generate market returns for investors by investing alongside that public policy. In some cases, we do so by actually even financing the tax credit or incentive. In the case of, of solar, uh, we will finance what is called solar tax equity. And in other cases, um, we are investing in the equity of the underlying project, but alongside that public policy. And, and that's an example of where there's a stated public good. Another example is in the um, community revitalization projects that we finance in our impact real estate group. 
Those in many cases are historic buildings where there's a public policy, a tax credit there as well to restore and preserve historic buildings. And yet we are able to generate a market rate of return by um, investing in those projects, but it coincides with that public policy. What is the decision-making process or due diligence that underpins your investment strategy? Well, here again is an example of where our operations are really no different than any other manager of private capital in these types of markets. The key difference is that in addition to the decision-making and diligence we're doing around the underlying credit profile, we're also making decisions and doing diligence on the impact that a particular investment may or may not have. So we have a full decision-making process that relies on both originating, underwriting, executing transactions, and the diligence we're doing is conventional diligence where we're looking at you know financial performance and history, certainly because we're a lender, um, we care deeply about balance sheet characteristics, assets, third-party credit support, um, the overall market that that company or real estate project participates in. But we are also looking at the uh, impact characteristics, in particular for a small business. What are the jobs that are going to be created or retained in the low-income community or rural area? where we're investing. Are there other impact characteristics? We've invested in businesses that mentor disadvantaged youth, and we want to understand how those programs work and are um, are going to continue to, to flourish. In an impact real estate transaction, it may be what is the impact on the surrounding community or in a climate transaction, you know, what are the carbon offsets? So that's a separate diligence exercise. And then when we're making the ultimate decision, we are considering at the investment committee level both the credit characteristics as well as the impact characteristics. And we have to satisfy both in order to proceed with any given investment. Has it been difficult to find opportunities over the last two years given COVID? It's a good question. I would say it has not been difficult to find opportunities. And in some cases, just because of some of the additional stress that the pandemic has created for businesses and developers, there there have been even more opportunities. I think the difficulty has been just from a, a pure kind of practical logistics standpoint that for you know a very long time we were unable to travel. And you know, historically we hadn't made investments unless we knew that you know we had sat down with the management team and and walked the plant saw the real estate project up close and so having to navigate that especially during the early days of the pandemic was was quite challenging and so we definitely slowed down the pace of our deployment um, while we sort of figured out how it was that we were going to be able to to deal with you know just the impediments around face-to-face, in-person meetings and and travel. Now that that has loosened up, we're actually seeing a considerable 
um, volume of, of interesting opportunities uh, that satisfy both kind of our credit and impact objectives. I would say, you know, higher than it, it's ever been. So we're, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not pleased with the, the circumstances that have created some of those needs, but, uh, but certainly pleased with the quality and, and volume. And I will say in some ways, it's also on the kind of positive side, a reflection of the fact that, you know, businesses are, you know, back to grow into growth mode and executing their plans. And, and that requires capital developers that maybe had projects on hold uh, while they um, navigated the pandemic themselves. They have those projects back into go mode. So um, so we're we're optimistic with, you know, with some of the reasons that we're seeing that value. How are your deals structured? Do you have covenants or other lender protections? We do. Our deals are structured, you know, depending on the transaction, because you know our impact real estate transactions are certainly different than making a small business loan or a, a renewable energy transaction. But within each of those silos, our deals are structured in a you know fairly conventional way. We certainly have uh, lender protections. I would say that our orientation toward the credit markets has always been to attempt to de-risk the um, investments as much as we can. And we have always um, focused first and foremost on preservation of capital. And so when we structure a transaction, it's usually with that uh, in mind. And we, we like multiple ways out of a transaction so that if um, you know the business or project doesn't perform, we have some kind of ancillary credit support uh, in the form of other assets or perhaps you know guarantees in, in in many cases. And so with that, we almost always have covenants and uh, and the covenants you know have to fit the um, transaction. But covenants are a very effective way of forecasting issues that are starting to occur and may get worse. And so we want to see those issues before much later in a potential transaction where it uh, you know becomes more difficult to act. So what are some of the misperceptions surrounding lower middle market investing? Well, I think the biggest misperception is that when you go down market, you by definition are taking on more risk because you're dealing with smaller enterprises. And while in some cases that could be true, we've actually observed the opposite. You know, when the um, capital markets, particularly around credit, have become so flush with all the funds that have been raised, there's so much competition up market that many of those transactions end up getting priced at a much lower um, price point than than one would have expected given the risk. And uh, and to your covenants question, many of those transactions are covenant light, or in some cases, uh, you know, no covenants at all. When we find a deal that we think is attractive, there's very little competition for that transaction. We often talk of the competition line as a function of both geography and size. And most of our transactions are below one or the other so that there aren't great alternatives for that borrower. And as a result, we can typically structure a transaction with the right types of lender protections in mind that, you know, if we were up market, uh, we would never be able to do so. 
And frankly, we would be competing against multiple other sources of capital just to try to win the deal. So I think that misperception that down market means you're taking on uh, incremental risk uh, is a, a fundam fundamental misperception. And, and that we would say is not just us. That's just the lower middle market in general compared to, um, to transactions up market. What new market dynamics could impact investing over the next couple of years? Well, certainly just macro pressures. So if we you know, go into a significant downturn, then you know, in each of our silos, there could be some type of impact. Small businesses uh, would certainly be affected. Uh, we're seeing some of that with the supply chain pressures that we have currently. There could be real estate developments that no longer pencil out uh, or can get um, you know the other parts of the financing that they need to to complete their transactions in a significant downturn. You know we are experiencing some inflation now, and uh, and that combined with the supply chain pressures is certainly something that we're we're watching closely and uh, and we we monitor particularly in our our small business silo. But also in our climate finance group, um, you know, the supply chain has affected the availability, for example, of solar panels. And so, you know, those types of uh, dynamics will, will continue to play out and affect us. But, you know, we've been doing this for 20 plus years. And so we've seen, you know, market cycles uh, come and go and changing market dynamics. And, and our view is that Overall, there should be you know plenty of interesting opportunities uh, for years to come you know in, in the space where we invest. So, how do you expect inflationary pressure, Fed tapering, potential interest rate hikes to impact credit markets in 2022? You know, what other red flags do you see on the horizon for credit investors? Sure. So, you know, as I was saying, inflation is certainly on our radar now, and we're paying close attention to it. We um, we haven't experienced, I would say to date, we haven't experienced any significant pressure in our portfolio, but we're thinking about the types of businesses on a going forward basis that could be more affected uh, by inflation than others. And, and so, you know, that's certainly um, something that, that could have an impact. Overall, you know, we, like a lot of other, you know, credit investors and, you know, lenders, structure a lot of our transactions as floating rate transactions. So interest rate uh, changes are, are typically absorbed in the, uh, you know, in adjusting rates in our downstream deals. But if, you know, interest rates continue to climb, then um, one of the things that, you know, we will be watching is how other forms of financing that either our businesses or our real estate projects uh, access uh, could be affected. That can go both ways. One, it could be negatively affected because those uh, forms of financing are no longer readily available. In other cases, that could present opportunities for us to um, participate in parts of the capital stack of some of these transactions where we don't currently. So I think that, you know, the, the red flags for us are you know, in general, inflation and interest rates and how they affect kind of the other lenders that are parts of our transaction, you know, construction lending and real estate, for example, or in a solar 
um, project, you know, bank debt for our small businesses, you know, to the extent that that those sources of capital uh, dry up, you know, that that would certainly put pressure on the projects and businesses where that uh, we typically finance. How did your portfolio hold up during a recessionary period such as 2009 or through a distressed cycle? Yeah, we get this question a lot. I'm always happy to report that our portfolio held up remarkably well. And I think it's because when the financial crisis hit, for example, we were very patient with our borrowers. We went through the portfolio and sat down with with each of our borrowers in the portfolio and tried to understand how the the financial crisis was impacting them. And in some cases, it, it was impacting them a lot. And our conclusion has always been that the best way to get repaid is to be patient and restructure debt where that's necessary. And and certainly, uh, you know, we're compensated for doing so. But then ultimately, a going concern is the best form of repayment and liquidating is rarely the, the best way to get repaid. And in fact, if you look at the financial crisis, the, the, the folks that did go in and liquidated, especially early on, you know, in many cases recovered pennies on the dollar. Whereas by being patient, you know, our businesses came back stronger than ever. And, you know, they were um, successful as a result. And, and so were we. I would say, in general, we tend to not favor consumer facing businesses. So in a downturn like that, same thing in the pandemic, we have been a little less uh, impacted just because you know, we're not typically financing the, the types of businesses that, that get hurt the most in those types of downturns. What new lending opportunities could arise for enhanced capital from the U.S. infrastructure bill and more specifically, the Build Back Better plan, assuming some version of it passes? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because, you know, so much of what we've done historically to your earlier question really aligns with public policy initiatives. And much of our impact strategies are uh, really just an outgrowth of those public policy uh, initiatives. So in the U.S. infrastructure bill, there are not there's nothing there that we would look at and say there is a direct opportunity but we do think the extent to which there is more private capital flowing into infrastructure that will generally align with what we're doing certainly in and around renewable energy and uh, and there may be some lending opportunities that come from it i think more directly the build back better plan just as you said, in whatever form something passes, if anything passes at all, um, I think provides more um, direct opportunities for us. There are some tax credits in the Build Back Better plan that expand on current tax credits. And we do a lot of financing, as I mentioned, of tax credit type projects, not just the credits themselves, although we do that, but also financing projects where tax equity may come in later and the project needs capital in the meantime um, to, to complete the project expenditures. We do a lot of that type of financing and uh, the Build Back Better plan expands the application. Oh, and we also see a, um, you know, a real focus on underserved market investing, low-income communities, 
and disadvantaged areas. And, um, you know, that's a core part of where we invest. And so we, we likely would see opportunities from that part of the bill as well. Do you think more financial players will adopt impact investing? There are certainly a number of investment firms that are holding themselves out as certainly ESG sensitive and also uh, impact investors. Some of that, you know, falls into the category that now, uh, you know, the term greenwashing, which largely refers to you know, the groups that are riding the wave of interest in ESG and impact investing, but are really trying to shoehorn what they've done historically to, to kind of fit what those terms mean. And, and there will continue to be some of that. But I think more and more investors are sophisticated uh, as to what ESG means, what impact investing means. They're coming at it with real kind of metric-driven approach. So I, I think the, the risk of the greenwashing will recede. That said, I think it's an interesting space that people are now realizing can offer an opportunity to deploy capital and achieve the market rates of return and the impact objectives that we seek to achieve. And more and more uh, financial players are likely to be interested, both the source of capital and also those that, that manage that capital. I think we're still in a, in a time where there's a bit of a supply and demand mismatch, where there's probably more capital out there that has identified the need or, or desire to invest in impact investing but there hasn't yet been the financial impact investment firms that have caught up with uh, you know, the ability to meet that need. And why is the firm named Enhanced Capital? It's a great question. I mean, today it's the perfect name because we are capital for, uh, you know, for businesses and, and projects, but we're more than just capital. Obviously, the whole impact dimension for our investors and uh, and we really seek to work with our, our businesses and projects uh, to have a, a, a greater impact on them than just providing capital. So I love the name today. I, I wasn't sure I always love the name. It, it really came about because uh, we were participating in economic development programs where you know we had to be more than just capital. We had to care about investing in underserved areas or job creation retention. And so that was certainly um, an enhancement. But now when um, I introduce the firm and people hear that we are investing not only for financial returns, but also impact, a lot of people comment, ah, that's why you're named Enhanced Capital. So I, I guess it fits. Michael, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Don't forget you can download and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and check us out on the Wistia platform.